Go ahead and find what you uh, need there in your outline as a place that you can take notes and to your spot. Let me go ahead and uh, I want to make a correction from last week. Near the end of last week's message in first service, um, I said something that I adamantly, vehemently do not believe. And what I said was that salvation is a work that we partner in. And there was no lightning. There was no lynch mob. I don't know if I'm mildly disappointed. Um, I think maybe because in context, it was pretty clear maybe what I meant. In any case, what I said is salvation is entirely a work of God, and then that's all to God's glory. And then what I meant to say right after that is, but sanctification, sanctification is a work that we partner with God in, but that is also completely to God's glory. That's what I meant to say, and that, that would have been good, maybe. But instead, what I said was salvation is completely a work of God, and that's to his glory. And then I said, again, contradictorily, salvation is a work that we partner in. All right, if you're sufficiently confused, good enough, you're not bothered by it. If you were bothered, you feel better now. And uh, most importantly, uh, the record is straight. And uh, Lord have mercy. Uh, man, anything I say, feel free to ask me. Uh, and if you think I said it wrong, I probably did. Um, and so feel free to search the word or come to me and chat about it. Thanks for um, letting me rejoice and reveling in the fact that God is always true, uh, even when we are not. All right, you got your spot in your Bibles marked in Philippians chapter 1. And join me. Let's continue worship and go to the Lord in prayer. Our great God, meet us this morning, not as a people who say all the right things. Certainly not as a people who do or even a people who know all the right things, but we do know the truth because Christ is the truth and he has given himself to us. He has given himself for us and so we know it is true how much we need you, how much your grace is powerful and is our only hope and how much you, O oh Lord our God, you do your work. Would you this morning continue that good work, continue to help us worship, Glorify and exalt your name. Lift up your son here. Holy Spirit, do your magnifying work of the Father and the Son and let your people see and behold and in seeing be changed. Use this time for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Early Rain Covenant Church has been one of uh, China's most prominent, prominent house church movements. In December of uh, 2018, there was a raid uh, by the Chinese Communist Party government. Um, over 100 members were arrested. Uh, Pastor Wang Yi was imprisoned during that raid on early rain. Uh, a work has just come out, uh, translated into English, thankfully, called Faithful Disobedience. Um, it's a collection of essays and uh, pastoral letters and conference talks that, that give a glimpse of, of the perspective of this church and its leadership uh, before that time that the hammer fell in 2018. Not that that was the only time or, or even the first time by any means, but that was a big moment. Pastor Wang Yi has been in prison for over four years now, just speaking of himself. Trevin, Trevin Wax reports um, this for us in the Gospel Coalition. That's part of what I'm sharing from about this book, Faithful Disobedience, and um, about these things. The mission of Early Rain Covenant Church 
was uh, expressed well in some writings that are dated to October of 2018, just a couple of months before the big raid uh, happened. And uh, in summary, some of those writings said this, very short and sweet, four points that you need to know. These leaders in the church in China told uh, the believers in the churches. You ready? Four things. Christ is Lord. Grace is King. Bear the cross. Keep the faith. That's it. There's nothing that really sums up better the body of um, writings and its understanding in that book and of these people than those four things. Christ is Lord. Grace is King. Bear the cross. Keep the faith. In 2015, a few years before his arrest, Wang Yi wrote these words. God's kingdom is already here in China. It cannot be denied by the power of the sword because God's kingdom is brought forth by the only begotten Son of God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who brought forth this kingdom on the cross through his own death under the power of the sword. Jesus is Lord and God's kingdom is spreading, brothers and sisters. But we will have to suffer. Philippians chapter 1, we come to this passage starting in verse 12 this morning of this little letter that Paul writes from house arrest. There is some discussion as to which imprisonment of Paul's it is from which he writes. And isn't that a fascinating statement of itself? Which one of Paul's arrests for Christ is the occasion for the writing of this particular letter? Paul writes to encourage these Christians in Philippi who are worried about him, who are fearful for him, who are very likely in danger of being discouraged because their leader, the one who taught them first in Christ, their mentor and their shepherd, he is now in prison. And so he writes with profound wisdom to give them a view into what God is really doing. And to show that that view so clearly demonstrates there is no reason to wring hands. There is no reason to despair. There is no reason to fail, but rather much reason to take great courage. Paul in his writing is strong in grace and strong in the knowledge of God's sovereignty, even in his situation. And Paul is modeling for them how to magnify Christ through suffering. And so that's what we're going to look at together this morning. Magnify Christ through suffering. Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. Follow along with me and let's read. Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am pointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. First, this morning, brothers and sisters, notice that the Lord reverses outcomes. The Lord reverses outcomes. 
Look in there in verse 12. I'm reading from the NAS, and here's what it says. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, if you're reading one of uh, the other um, better translations, there's a good chance that you'll notice there's a word that doesn't show up in the NAS. In the way they've translated it, I think it's implicit, but I want it to be explicit. Because the word that's not explicit in the NAS is a word in most of the other translations, uh, really or actually. So let me read it in place where I think it would go. I want you to know, brethren, my circumstances have, have actually turned out for the greater pr progress of the gospel. Or my, my circumstances have really turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. There is a word there corresponding to it in the Greek, malon. That means rather, it's a contrastive. It is emphasizing the point. When Paul writes, this is contrary to the expectation of his recipients. They're not expecting Paul to write them a letter and say, man, um, things in prison are great. Wish you were here. But that's about what he says. Man, things here are from the perspective of the throne room of God as gloriously good as they could ever be. I wish all of you could be experiencing what I'm experiencing. They write to him, they, they send a delegation to him anticipating in his bad news, his brokenness and his hurt, his weakness and his weariness. He writes back to them in strength and in joy. Uh, I, think, I think one of the closest experiences I've had to this that I've had on multiple occasions is uh, visiting folks in our body in the hospital. By the way, don't take any pressure from this. Okay, I'll just say that as a disclaimer up front. But I can't, I can't tell you the number of times I've gone to visit someone um, in the hospital uh, from our body and encourage them in the Lord, and I leave, and I think, I am so jazzed by their faith. I'm so excited by their encouragement of me because God just does things through suffering. God just does things by setting us aside. And I come in thinking, all right, I'm going to like read a Bible verse. I'm going to pray. You know, the heavens are going to open. Oh, the sun is going to shine down. And there in that room, they will experience some joy for a couple of minutes while I'm there. I, by the grace of God, I hope I don't think that arrogantly, but just to make fun. Uh, the point is what ends up happening is much the other way around, right? They are the ones in the place of God's joy and revelation and new insight and in their brokenness, he is bringing wholeness. And in their weakness, he is strong. And so I sit down and I ask some questions. And pretty quickly, it's like, you know, let me tell you what God's been showing me while I've been here. And I'm like, dude, I need some of that. Can I get in, you know, next to you on the bed there? Because I need to learn some of that too. What's implied in the way that Paul writes is the Philippians' understanding. Paul, your situation is tragic. Paul, Paul, your, your situation is unfair. Your situation is, is worrisome. Now, all of that may well indeed be true, but the Lord reverses outcomes, and that's the point of our whole passage today that we look at, that the Lord reverses outcomes. He who is the ever-working God, Paul has just told the Philippians in verse 6, Right? He who began a, a good work in you will complete it the day of Christ Jesus. 
He who is master over life and death itself, he will say to these Philippians by the end of this opening chapter, he has sovereignly attended Paul's circumstance in every detail. And Paul says, I'm getting a glimpse of it and I want to share it with you because I need somebody to, to rejoice with me over what he's doing. God has ordained Paul's circumstance both to his own glory and for the spreading of his name. And he is reversing the outcome of what we might expect otherwise. What might we expect? Well, let's just do a quick review of what we know of Paul's history at this point. He's uh, been a victim of trumped-up charges. He has experienced, experienced injustice from the leaders of his society, both the civic and religious leaders. He has faced illegal and oppressive treatment, beatings, imprisonment on multiple occasions. He has a known escape and hunger and thirst and shipwreck and snakes. Now, we'll find out in today's passage, he is currently experiencing jealousy and strife and bitterness and attack from other Christian believers. In fact, apparently, from other church leaders, it seems. We'll get to that in a moment. Question, what would you expect would be the outcome of all of that in such a situation? What do you think would be the outcome of all of those ingredients in this recipe? Maybe the dishonor of Christ. Lord, look at, look at how they speak of your name, both because of me in prison and because of what some of your people are doing. Maybe some bitterness in Paul himself. Lord, this isn't fair. I gave up a good career, right, as a rabbi and a traveling speaker. I was well-educated. I laid it all on the line, and it is down the tubes, right? And what about these that I've loved and served and ministered to, and some are turning against me? It's not fair. Frustration with God maybe is an outcome that you and I might Expect if we were in that situation. How about even the despair? The despair that there's even any goodness in this world, right? Everything is broken. Nothing is right. Everything is falling apart. Just a sense of there is no righteousness to be found anywhere. That's the recipe. That's, that's the outcome that we would anticipate. God reverses outcomes, doesn't he? Instead, Paul can clearly see God's hand. He can, he can so clearly see God's hand in everything that's happened. In fact, more so because he's been brought low. More so because he's been broken and the distractions have been burned away. Instead, we find a Paul who has a supernatural gratitude for everything he's been through. We find a man who, who will worship and praise and write with powerful joy. That's why this is called the letter of joy. He has a divine confidence and a clarity that God is good. Do you have that this morning? Do I have that this morning? Well, I kind of do, but I don't really because, you know, you know, see, look, here's what happened this week. Yeah, great. Hold it up to Paul's list and see if you or I has better reason 
to not have confidence in the glorious, eternal goodness of God because that's the joy that Paul has. And that's what he wants for these Philippians. He's, he's going to tell them at the end of this chapter what he's, what he's in part building towards is the fact that he is, well, let me just give you the whole thing. He's told them, you have shared with me uh, in the gospel. And he rejoices that they're, part of, they're partakers. We have koinonia, we have fellowship, we have sharing in the gospel. And then a few verses later, we've already passed this, uh, we have a sharing in grace, he says. And then when he gets to verses 28 and 29 and 30, he's not going to use the word koinonia, but the concept is there. He says, but I also want you to know you're, we're going to have a sharing in something else. Because you're going to suffer, and you're going to suffer the same kind of afflictions I've suffered. That's what he's going to tell them. We're going to share in that too. And so what's he going to do to prepare them for it? He says, I, I hope, man, with all my heart, I hope you share in the joy, the confidence, and the clarity and the glory of God that I have known. This is the joy of being counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name that, that the apostles knew in Acts chapter 4 and 5, elsewhere in Scripture. The Lord reverses outcomes. Do you believe that the Lord reverses outcomes? Scripture says in so many places that that's what he does, right? Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. The, the religious leaders sought to silence the gospel <laughs> by, by harassing Paul and chasing him and, and eventually getting the authorities to dog him and then arrest him. They sought to silence the gospel, but you know what they've done? They have advanced the gospel. They're so dumb. They have advanced the gospel. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. I know when I had the freedom and liberty to go about and visit every synagogue in every small town throughout the coastal regions of the Mediterranean, I could go on any given day, any given Sabbath, and, and speak from the scriptures that the Messiah had come and then preach the gospel. And that was good. Now I'm stuck here, chained to some Roman soldier. And you know what? The advance of the gospel is like multiplied because I'm stuck here. Because God reverses outcomes. Paul is thrilled to write this letter. He's thrilled to share this news. Because he wants the Philippians' hearts to echo, to resonate with it. Oh, I get it. When I see it from the right perspective, is it unjust? Absolutely. Is it evil and satanic and tragic? And, and might it bring bitterness? Absolutely it would. But rightly seen, God is doing what only God does. And he has ordained to do it this way. And his this way is better than any other way. And that's awesome. Paul writes with excitement. Not because his circumstances have changed but because his God hasn't. The Lord reverses outcomes. And today, brothers and sisters, he is still turning all things to his glory. He is still bringing about all things for the sake of the good of those who love him and who know him and who are called according to his purpose. The Lord reverses outcomes. Second, 
we see how God purposes Christ-exalting suffering. Christ-exalting suffering makes Christ an issue for non-believers. One of God's purposes in, in, in Christ-magnifying suffering is that it makes Christ an issue for all to see. It makes Christ an issue for non-believers, 13. So that my imprisonment, Paul writes, in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. You know, we have to read this and, and just laugh, right? <laughs> my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has caused the, the Roman military to, to hear the gospel directly from Paul himself, and I'm sure even from each other as they're chatting about, what are you doing today? I've, I'm, uh, I'm supposed to like guard this Galilean dude. Oh, you're hanging with Paul. I was with him yesterday. Yeah, what's, what's up with that dude? And then the one guy tells his story. I don't know, it's some skirmish about some Jewish sect and some Nazarene. I don't know, the dude's nuts, but he's really excited about this um, Jesus guy. Uh, don't, trust me, you'll get an earful this afternoon. And they're talking about it. What did he do that's so bad? Um, I, don't, I guess he made some people mad. Well, did he kill somebody? Did he... Did he you know, start a, a riot? Was there a mob scene? I mean, you know, did he rob the president's house or, you know, the, the procurator's, you know, estate? What did he do? I don't know. You just have to hear it for him. It's, it's because of this Christ guy that he's there. We have to laugh because God is so strategic and his purposes are so crafty. And I mean that in the most holy sense, Right? God is so crafty. It, it, it is uh, circumstantial jujitsu. He takes whatever the enemy throws, and he says, oh, yeah, I can parry and spar and use that momentum for um, something for the gospel. That's awesome. Bring some more, why don't you? <laughs> if the early church um, had had a tactical meeting, maybe they could have sat down and said, how can we... How can we penetrate the upper echelons of society with the gospel? Is there some way that we could do it? Like, like maybe even the Roman military. I mean, I know they were raised as pagans, they worship false gods, and they're avowedly serving an atheistic government. Well, actually, a super polytheistic atheistic government, but you get the point. Like, could we reach those guys? That's like, that's like one of the hardest places to get into. And maybe even we could, we could reach some in the royal household, maybe some political families. Is there some way we could get some of the members of the royal families uh, and, and other political higher-ups to know about Jesus? Now, I, I don't know that the early church ever had that meeting. I don't know that there was ever that tactical planning session. But, but that would be a wild-eyed wish, wouldn't it, for them to try and figure out how to do that. And yet that's exactly what God was ordained to do with Paul, right? My imprisonment, 13, in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And you think, okay, well, okay, we get it. The Roman military people and they're chained to Paul. By the way, if this is the correct imprisonment, then they're chained to Paul. But regardless, we know from Paul's own words here that whoever is guarding him, however they're guarding him, are hearing all about the gospel, and it's becoming the hubbub 
And apparently not just in those guards, but as they take it back to the other leaders and even the, the, those who have uh, sent them to guard Paul. But you say, but yeah, but Frank, you brought up royal families, political families. That's a bit of a stretch, right? Flip over to the end of the book. And who do we know is impacted by Paul being in prison there? Uh, Philippians 4, look uh, right at the very end with me. Let's start reading in verse 21. He's going to end the letter this way. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially who? <laughs> especially those saints of Caesar's household. That's who Paul is influencing. Why? Because God decided that's how he would reach anyone and everyone from the lowest to the highest. What is happening is that Jesus of Nazareth is becoming an issue for even these who were stuck in the hardest to reach nooks and crannies of that um, giant cliff of culture in that day, the hardest to get to. God is pouring his grace. He's pouring his truth. He's pouring the gospel, at least the witness of it, into those cracks. So everyone has opportunity. And how does it happen? Answer, brothers and sisters, through Christ exalting suffering. We want people to know Christ, don't we? We have loved ones who we, we wish we have people that we, we think, they, they don't even think about God, or they, they've long ago built their, their high tower of defense against it, and they've locked it out, and they'll have no interest in spiritual things whatsoever. Well, guess what? Biblically speaking, there's one thing that can crash down those walls, at least one, but that means we may have to suffer. Christ-exalting suffering is used by, by God to get the attention of non-believers and make Christ an issue for them. The suffering of God's people in innocence, it can rouse the lost from their deadly satanic slumber and get their attention in a way that, that no other reasoned argument, no other impassioned appeal could ever do. Not the most holy, righteous living could ever, could ever break through. But suffering, Christ-exalting suffering, can. John Owen, who a uh, good Puritan in the 1600s, uh, wrote a little work called Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ. Because if you're a Puritan and you write something, you always title it you know, in a way like that. In fact, his was a really short title for those guys. Anyway, 1684, he wrote this. Satan's greatest success is in making people think they have plenty of time before they die to consider their eternal welfare. Do you know anyone for whom that's true? I do. That is a work of the enemy to keep people blinded, even from Christ being an issue in their lives. Jews for Jesus, that ministry has been around for a number of decades. You know what their, uh, their catchphrase, their slogan, their, their mission statement in a single phrase always was, at least it used to be, I don't know if they still use the same one. Their mission statement was, our mission is to make the Messiahship of Jesus Christ an unavoidable issue for every Jewish person. What a great mission statement. To make the Messiahship of Jesus Christ an unavoidable issue. I can't save people. We can't save people, but we can make Christ an issue that people have to deal with. And Paul, suffering has made it an issue for every one of those guards. 
Now, granted, the majority of them are going to walk away and go, he's, a, he's an idiot. He's a lunatic. He's off his rocker. I can't believe he's a well-bred, you know, well-taught, educated guy. And look at where he is. He, he threw it all away. But they have to deal with the question of what it is that got him to that point that he would be willing to do that. And some will believe. Some in Caesar's household will believe as a result of that. We want people we know to be wakened out of their punch-drunk slumber and see that Christ is the issue of the ages, to see that Christ is the issue of their soul. Brother, sister, question for you, question I have to look in the mirror and ask me, am I willing? Am I willing to suffer for Christ? Because that may be the means. That may be the means that God may use. But if we're going to suffer for the Lord, oh, may he use it. Oh, may he use it to make Christ an issue. When believers walk with Christ in suffering, honest, broken, humble suffering, admitting, I can't do this. I can't handle this. I never asked for this, right? Just being honest. But man, this is where God has me. Your reputation is not yours to defend. The Lord will take care of enough of that. But he, along the way, will exalt himself. And when believers walk with Christ in suffering, the lost pause. And they go, you know, their words are one thing. But their actions, now that has my attention. The lost take notice. The lost begin to wonder. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade places with her for all the gold in Fort Knox but I think she's got something I don't, and I want it. Christ-exalting suffering makes Christ an issue for non-believers, and what a great thing that is. Next, we see another way that God purposes Christ-exalting suffering, another purpose he has behind it. Christ-exalting suffering helps persuade believers to leave off their small-mindedness. Christ-exalting suffering helps persuade believers to leave off our small-mindedness, to set aside our small dreams. 14. I'll start with 13. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, Paul says, and most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. When Paul chose to gladly welcome suffering for the sake of Christ, other believers said, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Well, if he can do it, I, I want to do it. Well, if he can do it, why is he doing it? Because I would never do that, and now that I think about it, that's ridiculous to say that I would never do it because I'm supposed to do it. Lord, help me, I want to do it. And they start doing it. Other believers seeing Paul's suffering and hearing his story were fortified. Did you hear what happened to Paul? Paul, uh, who? Saul of Tarsus. Oh, yeah, Saul of Tarsus. I mean, he was the guy that used to kill all of us, right? But then, yeah, I heard he's like totally sold out for Jesus now. Yeah, guess what? He's in prison because the Jews stirred up the Romans, and now they've got him. Have you heard what he's been through? Have you heard what he's doing now? I mean, this guy who was trying to kill us is now ready to die? For what we believe, I want some of that. <laughs> I, I want to be more like that. 
I remember just yesterday, one of my Jewish friends was asking me something about if I really think that maybe this Jesus the Nazarene is like really it, and I changed the subject. Man, I really wish I wouldn't have done that now. I want to be more like Paul, they said. This clarified for other believers the reason why the Lord has called them. This challenged them in the best way. Not because Paul went and preached it. Paul just did it. And then the Holy Spirit took Paul and preached it. What a beautiful thing. Suffering does that. Suffering causes us to leave off our small-mindedness. If you and I are offended at the phrase small-mindedness, then good. Good for me. Good for you. The Lord will decide. You can take it to him. I'm not your judge. But I know I'm small-minded so very often. And I need the challenge of a suffering brother or sister in Christ to rouse my spirit and say, what are you living for? You're going to breathe your last one day. What do you want to be said of you? What do you want to stand before God and say, Lord, thank you for using me in this way? Suffering does that. Suffering weans us off of the comforts of this world and prepares our souls for eternity and causes us to make convicted decisions where we resolve, I don't care anymore. I don't care what it costs anymore. Because it hurts bad and and life hurts bad and life is going to hurt bad anyway. At the very least, I want to hurt bad for eternal stuff. So when we suffer, we grow in eternal-mindedness. We begin to actually do, as Christ has exhorted his followers, followers to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And we actually do it. It, it, it becomes our first concern in every situation. And when we do it, it, it prompts others to want to do it. Other believers. Christ exalting suffering helps persuade believers to leave off their small dreams. We're so easily distracted, but the Lord can quickly refocus us, right? Paul's willingness to suffer, the Holy Spirit here tells us, has, has persuaded. Um, in my translation, uh, it says in verse 14, trusting. Most of the brethren trusting in the Lord. That's how the NAS translates. It's good, good translation. Um, but I want to bring out the nuance of the word because Paul writes here with incredible joy, and he says, you know what, I'm, I'm actually hearing the stories. I don't know how he's heard, but somehow they're filtering back to him under house arrest. And he's saying, I have heard how men and women have been persuaded to live differently because of what I'm doing. And I can't tell you how that encourages my soul to stand faithful, Paul says. What have other believers actually been persuaded, had their, their minds changed about? First, to have courage. I need courage and grace. I don't want suffering. But if Romans 5 tells us to exult in our tribulations because of that chain of events of what it, it produces in us that ends in character, ends in more of the knowledge of God, ends in more of the experience of his love, then if God ordains it, we'll welcome it, won't we? And we will, in fact, be optimistic and joyful. In fact, we'll be, we'll be grateful because we say, Lord, by this, you can make me more persuaded to live for kingdom things and to have courage. 
Others, Paul says, are, are persuaded more than ever because of Paul's suffering. You ever, uh, you ever been on a mission trip? You may have experienced this any number of times here in the States, but I think we often experience it uh, quite commonly when we, when we leave this country and we go somewhere else and we rub shoulders with other believers there and we see how much they don't have and we see how much they have to put up with and we see how things can be terribly unjust, right? And what do you do when you come home? Have you ever been bold before for the sake of Christ? You think, yeah, I've been like, uh, you know, tiny bold. But now I'm ready to be far more bold than I've ever been because I've rubbed shoulders with someone who gets it more than I get it. After suffering, we are more encouraged. Brothers and sisters, I've rubbed shoulders with some of you. And some of you have suffered in some ways. And it has encouraged me. And I thought, man, I just want to be more bold, Lord. Can I get the boldness without the suffering? That would be great. I'm not sure he allows us, you know, to make uh, adjustments to the menu. You just get delivered the order. But Paul is writing to these Philippians to tell them, look, you're going to suffer and you're going to have to suffer. But that's not a day to hang your head. When you see all these things take place, the Lord Jesus says, lift up your head because your redemption draws near. <laughs> so in the day when you are called to suffer, lift up your head and say, Lord, thank you. Really, me? Then great, do your work. Make me courageous. Make me bold. Make me loving of the lost. Not that they are the problem, but that they are the target. Make me, Lord, a redeemer of those desperately in need. Third, they speak the word. Christ's exalting suffering helps persuade believers to leave off small dreams. They have courage. They have it more than ever, and they speak the word. I couldn't help but, in thinking about this, be reminded of uh, our brother Mike a couple weeks ago who warned us about osmosis evangelism. You know, well, I'm there, and I know Jesus, and if I just hang out close to them, they'll get some Jesus. There's a time to be a presence, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that there isn't ever a time to speak up and to take a risk. They spoke the word, and they spoke the word forth uh, fruit of this persuasion. They spoke it fearlessly. Yes, with grace, but without fear. I'm going to read the stories today of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are imprisoned, and they are being tortured in prison, speaking the grace of Christ to their tormentors. I mean, when I just walk in off the street in my normal fleshly self, I hear that, and I go, that's crazy. Like, why do they do that? But then I get down in the Word, and I spend time with the Lord, and I let the Spirit do His work, and I think, that is awesome. Why would they ever do anything but that? Of course that's what they do. They are rejoicing and glad to do that because their love is real, because their hearts have been changed, and they, having suffered, have been persuaded to leave off their small-mindedness. Christ is Lord, grace is King. Bear the cross, keep the faith. Believers in Mozambique are experiencing as well this kind of persuasion to leave off their small-mindedness and to pursue bigger things. Uh, in one of the latter um, editions of uh, Voice of the Martyrs, 
They report Mozambique is a majority Christian country, but the northern provinces are predominantly Muslim. One of those, uh, called Cabo Delgado, uh, has had a violent uh, Muslim insurgency since 2016. It intensified in 2019 when the region there uh, and its Muslim leaders declared allegiance with the Islamic State. Remember those headlines back in those days that we've already forgotten, conveniently for us? Um, anyway, many believers uh, in that region in Mozambique have been killed. Uh, many have had to flee for their lives and been displaced. All manner of troubles. VOM reports this. Amid their suffering, these believers have seen God at work. One of the pastors says, because of all that's happened, the people fled here to one place where they can hear the word of God. When we go back, we will see many, many, many new churches being planted. That's a quote. There's three minis. There, we will see many, many, many new churches being planted. So many Muslims are saying, we want to follow Jesus because only Christians have, bought love, have brought love. What a great witness, right? And the Christians are speaking openly. Another pastor interviewed says this, the sharing of the gospel just isn't difficult for us now. When people do evil, it actually helps us because we remember that we're called to be different. God has called us to be different, and now we have this opportunity to set ourselves apart. Don't you love those words? <laughs> I, sharing the gospel has just never been easier, this believer says. Christ-exalting suffering helps persuade believers to leave off their small dreams. Do you hear the joy in those believers in Mozambique? Do you hear the resolve? Do you hear in the Apostle Paul the kingdom mindset as he celebrates? All of this has happened to do the exact opposite of what the enemies of the cross wanted to happen. kingdom mindset. Well, that's where our passage this morning is going to end. It's going to end with a kingdom mindset because Paul in all his trials has meditated on it. He has sung it. He has prayed it. He has praised it. He has shared it day and night, I'm sure. And he knows, he knows what is eternal. He can see it maybe clearer than ever there in his incarceration. And what is eternal, he tells us, is that Christ is proclaimed. What is eternal is that Christ is proclaimed. 15. Some, to be sure, Paul says, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. Two groups here. The latter do it out of love, knowing, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Two groups here. One who loves Paul and loves the gospel and probably prays for him and yearns for him and hurts for him. And, and they say, if he can do it, then, then we can do it too. And they're emboldened and they're preaching the gospel all the more, just as he has just said. But there's a second group, and, and this is the group that wants the worst for Paul. In fact, they on the outside are, are trying to do what they can to influence Paul's situation, either to influence the, the political decisions 
maybe by, by themselves stirring up a riot or, or making it seem, hey, man, we've got this guy, um, but, but us grabbing him, things have just got worse. We need to really make an example of him. I don't know exactly the fullness of their thinking, although I don't think it's rocket science either. I just think it doesn't tell us here. But we know for sure that they want the worst for Paul. And they're active in pursuing it. Now, we need to settle something um, that's a little difficult uh, to understand this passage, and you might have missed it. And, and I've been quick to miss it in reading over this passage in the past. But when we slow down, there's something here that's a little crazy uh, and a little uncomfortable, but we need to see it to rightly understand it. And it's this. We have to settle the potential question uh, of who are these opponents. Okay? It says that they, they preach out of envy and out of strife, and that they do it out of selfish ambition. But I'm sorry, the best I can understand as I wrestle through the passage over and over and over again, and I read all the people that bring all the different background pieces to bear, the best I can understand, do you know who these people are? They're not, they're not non-believers. They're believers. Let me, let me give the reasons why I think that, and I would be happy to be wrong, because the last thing I would want to do is to slander the church of Christ, and, and dishonor the name of the people of God. But I think the opponents here are not non-Christians. Why is that? Because in context, what are they doing? Look at verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife. And then look at 17. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. What are they doing? They're preaching the gospel. Okay, well, maybe that what they're preaching is a false gospel. I don't know. I don't think that option is going to fit. Because do you think Paul would rejoice over the preaching of a false gospel? He says, whatever, all I know is I rejoice because the gospel is preached. In Galatians, right, he says, look, if you hear a gospel that's different, I don't care who you hear it from. I don't, I don't care if you hear it from your dad, uh, the rabbi, you know, my, my latest mentee or, or, or an angel from heaven, let him be accursed if he preaches a different gospel. And so I, I think Paul here would fight it with the same amount of vehemence, a different gospel. These are apparently believers and apparently church leaders with some influence who know the gospel, but out of envy and strife and contention and selfish ambition. So what's the dynamic? I don't know. Again, Maybe they see, oh, guess what? A scandal has happened to the great Apostle Paul. How fortunate for us. If I go out and just preach the gospel, maybe the authorities will get more angry, more mad, and they'll make it harder on Paul. So I'm going to preach the gospel this week, and I'm going to preach it for all I'm worth. But what's my motive? Right? Here's Paul in prison being stabbed in the back by other believers. And, and what is his answer to all of it? What then? Verse 18. Tigar. Two little Greek words that, that stand for, in light of all that has happened, what should I do and think now? But he just says, what then? Only this, Christ is proclaimed. So I sing. God will deal with them. It's not my problem. That's not my concern. They want to pick a fight. Sorry, they, you win. I don't, you know, do what you want. I got no fight. 
live for the gospel because that's the one thing that's eternal. How tragic this is. Maybe some of these are jealous. Maybe, maybe they're sad because um, Paul has more Instagram followers than they do, you know. And so they can make themselves famous by bringing him down a notch, right? Does that dynamic ever happen in the Christian world today? It can, right? How insidious and how tragic it can be. They see an opportunity, I guess, in some way to make a name for themselves and take down one of the big dogs. And how does Paul respond? He just rises above it. He's going to write in Romans 5, as I mentioned before, we exult in our tribulations. Yeah, but what if, what if your tribulation is, is coming from being stabbed in the back from others who are preaching the gospel and they're using it for evil purpose? I'm sorry, did you say they were preaching the gospel? Good. I will rejoice. I will exult in my tribulations. And the rest of it I'll leave in God's hands. Man, what a great witness he is in that. Do we have that same motive? Man, can I learn from this, right? If the message that the other teachers are, are teaching and proclaiming, if the message is false, I think Paul would take them to task. If we hear a message from uh, a, a teacher, famous or not famous, you know, uh, in whatever media or, or just even in a small town, whatever it might be. If the message is false, then we must reject it. We don't have choice. Paul warns us in Galatians, right? You're accursed if you accept another. We must reject it. We must discern. We may even have a responsibility to talk to the person or to call it out or protect others, right? But if the message is true, then we just rejoice. It's not our job, right? Romans 14, each, each servant will stand before his own master and his master will judge. You know, I pray for that person if we think they're doing it falsely. Yes, there's a time to call out, but, but our focus should be primarily on false message, right? And what a great direction that is for us. Paul is modeling then for these believers who in Philippi send a delegation to him, and I think they're worried, they're fearful, they don't know how Paul is doing. And they get back a letter, and he goes, this is, eternally speaking, uh, an incredibly glorious time in my life, in fact, the way that God is using me. In fact, what I have prayed for, that his gospel would, would break boundaries and, and pour into people's lives, and be heard by some who will never come into the synagogue on Sabbath morning and hear me reason with the leaders over the Old Testament scriptures, that prayer, that desire is being utterly fulfilled in ways I could have never imagined and I could have never planned. What a great God we have. And Christ is being proclaimed. So friends, rejoice with me, he says. Wang Yi, that pastor, from Early Rain Covenant Church. He wrote a letter. One of his letters in that compilation was tiled, titled, 20 Ways Persecution is God's Way to Shepherd Us. Um, do you think that's a dude that's ever suffered before? Uh, if I wrote that article, it would be titled, A Half Away That Persecution you know, Might Be Used by God in Your Life, and I'm not even sure of it. Um, 20 Ways Persecution is God's Way to Shepherd Us. 
Anyway, in that article, he writes, test yourself to see if you are crazy for the gospel. When you are threatened with death for the gospel, you find out for whom you really live. When faced with the risk of job loss, you know for whom you really work. When you may lose fortune and position for the sake of the gospel, you find out whether you are crazy for money or crazy for the gospel. Brothers and sisters, no government can destroy the church because no government can destroy the gospel. No culture can destroy the church because no culture can destroy the gospel. No media, no organization, no crafty, deceitful, scheming wiles of the enemy can destroy the church because they can't touch the gospel. None of these can finally destroy God's people. But we will have to suffer. Christ is Lord. Grace is King. Bear the cross. Keep the faith. Magnify Christ through suffering. Stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we rejoice that you will magnify your name and that you are doing it today through imperfect vessels like us, and you are doing it even through those who avowedly name themselves your enemies and attack you. Attack your name. Fight against your people. Lord our God, we rejoice because nothing can destroy the church of Jesus Christ or the gospel, and that even the gates of hell will not prevail against this gospel. So Lord, let us go forth this week unafraid of what we might suffer, not as masochists, but Lord God, as people who deeply desire the satisfaction of being wholly used by God in whatever way you ordain, unafraid, unashamed, ever willing. Lord our God, might we learn from our brothers and sisters who today suffer in our midst and around the world, and might it grant us large-mindedness and large-hearted, kingdom-hearted purpose. Lord our God, help us to that end this week. Thank you that Christ, your son, experienced it. Thank you that Paul, your servant, experienced it. Thank you for Wang Yi. So many believers in China and in Mozambique and elsewhere are experiencing it. So, Lord God, why not us too? Have your way. Have all the glory. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.